Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. We're looking at um, the life of Christ, really, and I'm taking all four Gospels at one shot, okay? So we're, we're, <laughs> we're going to walk through this. And last week we looked at the fact that Jesus is no ordinary man, and we're going to continue that theme. Uh, the reason Jesus came is to reveal to us the reality, the truth, the glory, the true identity of the Father. The Father cannot be seen. He, he's absolutely in glory. He is truth. And, and we cannot even perceive him, understand him, if it were not for Jesus Christ coming to this earth in order to make him known. That's an amazing reality. So when we look at the identity of Christ and we look at the truth of who he is, in the Gospels, right, the first three are the synoptic Gospels that kind of track through the life of Christ. John is more evangelistic in, in its essence. John wrote that so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And believing you may have an understanding of who you are in Christ, you may have eternal life. He wrote what he wrote in order to share the reality that Jesus is no ordinary Man, And I believe we understand that, but I think we grow in that throughout our Christian lives. Let me give you a brief snapshot. We kind of looked at it a little bit last week, Matthew and Mark and how they uh, depict Christ in their writings. You can look through these particular statements. I want to just give you some thoughts from different commentaries that were meaningful to me about Matthew and then Mark and certainly Luke and John. In the Holman Commentary... The whole picture here of Matthew is an interesting one. It's a historical record of Jesus Christ. And when we begin reading this book today, we should, however, have in mind its ending. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, the Great Commission. And I like the way they put this. Matthew's purpose in his writing and his gospel was to show that Jesus had the power to command his disciples to spread his gospel throughout all the world. And I would simply add to it this. That he doesn't just have the power to tell us what to go do. He actually has come to live within us in order to fulfill what he's commanded us to go do. And folks, catch on to that. Because the idea that somehow we are separate from the Lord or somehow he gives us a command and that he's just sitting back expectantly waiting for us to go do what he told us to do is simply not biblical. The reality of it is he comes to live within us and he empowers us to do the very thing that he commands us to do. We are called to walk by faith. We're called to walk with him moment by moment, trusting in him, yielding in him. The Gospel of Mark from the Grace New Testament commentary says, Mark is writing to believers to aid them in fellowship or following Christ. It's a book of discipleship with emphasis on servant leadership. Catch that. This is a picture of Christ. He's a servant leader. He does have authority. He's a commander of the armed forces, so to speak. He comes to dwell within us in order to enable us and to empower us to do the very thing that he commands us to do. But he gives us a picture of what it means to be servant leaders in the gospel of Mark. And I like what Tyndale says in his Bible dictionary. He says, indeed, Mark introduces his book by referring to Jesus as the son of God. What may well be the true climax of the gospel occurs in Mark uh, chapter 15, verse 39, where Mark writes that a Gentile, a Roman centurion, upon hearing Jesus' death cry, exclaimed, truly this man was the Son of God. What, an, what a great story. Isn't that the best? 
And here's a guy that's watched so many die by this crucifixion, by this torture. And he comes to this conclusion, truly, truly, Jesus is no ordinary man. He must be the Son of God. Well, when you look at the the Gospels of Luke and the Gospel of John, Luke is just an amazing historical picture of the life of Christ. And I like this statement. Most scholars conclude that Luke's target audience was Gentile inquirers and Christians who needed strengthening in the faith. Isn't that awesome? It's for a Gentile audience predominantly. It's for people who are wondering, is this really true? I've heard about this kind of stuff, but I'm not really sure. And it's also for people who are believers who need to be encouraged and strengthened in the faith. faith. Grace New Testament Commentary puts it this way. Luke writes, to bolster the faith of one who has already believed in Jesus with a view to strengthening his Christian life. He especially addresses doubts and challenges relevant to believers who live in the period between the first and second advents of Jesus. For believers, the gospel of Luke is to be an encouragement that these things are true and that we can be strengthened in our faith as we trust in the Lord. The gospel of John I guess everybody's probably got their favorites. The Gospel of John tends to be mine because I love how John starts out. He doesn't just start out with the genealogy of Christ from the human perspective. He starts out with the reality of who Jesus Christ is in eternity past. He is the Word of God, and he has been. That word has been means he has ever existed and always will. The Gospel of John states... That these signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Taken out of John chapter 20, verse 31. That John's purpose is evangelistic is evident throughout the book. Folks, when we talk about these gospels, we're talking about a picture from the unique perspective as inspired by the Holy Spirit through each of these writers. And we get a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ here that is phenomenal. He's a commander, but he's also one who comes to live within us in order to walk with us. He's one who's a servant. We can trust him. Everything that he has done is verifiable. Right? And when we look at the Gospel of John, he's able to save. How do we view the life of Christ in comparison with our own lives? This is a really profound question in a lot of different ways. Let me ask you this. When you study the life of Jesus Christ, what begins to tick through your mind? Because how you answer this question will begin to dictate how you walk with God in the midst of your daily life. What expectation do you have imposed upon you either by others or yourself that somehow when you look at the life of Christ that this standard that he gives to us is something that we ourselves in and of our own strength are supposed to measure up to? You catch me? See, when I look at the life of Christ and I begin to to study the life of Christ and when we begin to recognize that he is no ordinary man, that he is the unique son of God, he's the only begotten, 
There's no one that's been like him before. There will never be one like him after. Nobody can duplicate the life of Christ. In and of your own strength, in and of my own strength, we cannot look at the life of Christ. We cannot look at his kindness. We cannot look at his compassion. We cannot look at his wisdom and his insight. We cannot look at his love. We cannot look at the way he dealt with people. We cannot look at his walk with the Father and its perfection. And somehow, in and of our own strength, say, that's what I'm supposed to do. Friend, that's what we're not. When we look at the life of Christ, what we're getting is a picture of one who is absolutely superior to us and that we desperately need. You catch it? Praise God for his grace. Praise God that he's given us a picture of what he is. And in the midst of that, we have the opportunity, because he invites us into it, to join him in what he alone is able to do in and through our lives. He alone is able to begin to transform us and metamorphosize us so that we begin to experience his life and his kindness, his love, his self-control, etc. Think about that. So I think too often we look at the life of Christ and we immediately impose this standard upon ourselves which we were never expected to try to bear. What we ought to do is look at the life of Christ and say, oh Lord, you're amazing. And thank you so much that you went to the cross for me so that I can experience your life as you work in me and then through me to reveal who you truly are to this world. How you answer that question becomes an amazing adventure. Today we're going to look at the demonstration of his power. Remember, everything that's written here, everything that Jesus did is for our benefit. It's for our benefit to reveal to us that Jesus Christ is no ordinary man. He is God in the flesh, right? And so when we begin to look at the life of Christ, we begin to realize, whoa, he's something unique. He is something special. And I think the attitude we ought to have is not this religious pride that somehow, (laughs) if we just give us a checklist and we're going to do it. No, what we ought to do is fall on our face before a holy God because we begin to see Jesus Christ is no ordinary man. The demonstration of his power, the activity of grace. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Next week, we're going to look at the demonstration of truth, the message of grace. The following week, we're going to look at the demonstration of mercy, the last week of Christ as he walked on this earth going to the cross, the sacrificial nature of grace. We're going to look at the resurrection, the demonstration of life, and the transformative power of of grace. Wow. And when you talk about the Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot, let me do this the correct linguistic way. My daughter's ringing in my mind. You must, <laughs> you must begin to realize that the grace of God is amazing. When we begin to look at the life of Christ, we must understand that he has come in order to reveal something to us that we would have never been able to figure out on our own apart from his being here. Amen? The demonstration of his power, the activity of grace. 
Three things, his insight, his relationships, and his deeds. His deeds, what he does. His insight, oh my goodness. We talk about the insight of the Lord Jesus Christ. We gotta recognize that Jesus is no ordinary man as seen through the activity of his life. When you view the activity of his life, you understand this is no ordinary man. You begin to realize that what he did, how he thought, how he perceived, the understanding that he had, sets him apart. He is the unique son of God. First of all, his insight. Revelation chapter 1, and I know that's not in the Gospels. I understand that. I mean, come on. Revelation 1, 14 through 17. There's a picture here that John is given about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just want to start there because there's one particular statement. It says, his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Now think about that. (laughs) Here's John. John had laid his head on Jesus' chest. John had been close to him. John had walked with him. John had seen him and, and eaten with him and all kinds of experiences with the Lord. And the Lord appears to him. And this is the revelation that John has. And John falls at his feet like a dead man. Because here's the revelation of Jesus Christ. The uncovering. That word revelation means the uncovering of the reality of who he is. John sees him and recognizes that his eyes were like a flame of fire. The idea is that he sees through everything. Let me ask you something. What motivation do you have today that you don't think that the Lord sees through? What activity is going on in your life today that for some reason you have convinced yourself that you're the only one that has figured out and that nobody else is able to see through it? What's going on in your life that you think you can hide from God? Are you serious? You don't think the Lord knows that? You don't think the Lord's able to see right through it? Oh, we could go right down that road, couldn't we? When you're by yourself, are you by yourself? No. Friend, Jesus Christ knows not only the activity, he knows the motive behind the activity. He's able to see right through it all. We talk about his insight. There's a recognition of his understanding. His disciples, you can see that in the way that he dealt with his disciples, the call of his disciples. And John and Andrew became followers of the Lord. They were followers of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a forerunner of Christ, and he constantly was pointing to Christ. A beautiful picture here. And immediately, he did such a good job that instead of continuing to follow John the Baptist, they immediately began to follow the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Andrew then goes to Peter. And tells them that they have found the Messiah. And then Jesus finds Philip, who goes out and gets Nathaniel and takes him to Jesus. Philip's always bringing somebody to Jesus. I love that picture. Right? In John chapter 1, verses 48 and 51, we see this idea of what is Jesus' insight? Nathaniel says to the Lord, how do you know me? How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you're the son of God, you're the king of Israel. 
And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What are we talking about here? We're talking about the fact that Jesus knew ahead of time. He saw ahead of time. He had insight ahead of time. When it came to Nathanael. And when Nathanael came to the Lord with all his doubt, with all his hope, with all his concern, and the Lord said to him, oh, by the way, before Philip came to you, guess what? I saw you under the fig tree. Nathanael was in shock because guess what? Nathanael knew what was going on in his mind underneath that fig tree. And there was a loaded implication here. Evidently, it must have been that Nathaniel was thinking about the hope of Israel, thinking about the Messiah, thinking about who this was. He had heard reports and heard all these different things, and he was confused and not sure. He may have even been in prayer. And the Lord says, I saw you. I saw you. Folks, Jesus is no ordinary man. His insight shows it. You know this story well. In Luke chapter 9, verses 46 and following, the disciples get into an argument about who's the greatest. You remember this? We never do that, do we? Come on, we never do. Who's the greatest pastor? Who's the greatest speaker? Holy smokes. I mean, we do this nonstop. Yeah, flick it, flick it. Oh, ah, he's boring. Right on. Oh, come on. It's incredible. An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, you catch that? How does he know what they were thinking in their heart? What? What does he do? He takes a child, stood stood him by his side, said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. Oh, folks, there's example after example after example after example of how the Lord understood and knew exactly what was on the heart and the minds of his disciples, and they were always in shock by it because he's no ordinary man. He's the God-man, and his insight shows it. Well, the religious, how do we recognize that Jesus is no ordinary man? His insight when it came to the motives of people. You can see it in the clearing of the temple in John chapter 2, verses 13 and following. He goes in and he finds in the temple those who are selling ox and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables and he, he makes a scourge of cords and drives them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he pours out the coins of the money changers and overturn their tables and to those who are selling the doves he says, take these things away, stop making my father's house a place of business. Right through the motives of it all. They were acting like they were doing God a favor by selling all this stuff. So that people, when they bought it, could go sacrifice to God. The Lord sees right through it. You don't have these people and their spiritual walk with God in mind. You have selfish motives. Stop making my father's house a place of business. The story of the paralytic in Mark chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. And again, I'm giving you snapshots here. Some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Remember what happened? We'll look at this in a moment. But the the men came and they couldn't get in to see Jesus, so they ripped up the roof. (laughs) Isn't that great? 
I mean, I don't know who the owner of the house is, but, you know, hilarious. There goes the roof. And you're going, what? Really? They lower this guy down. The Lord says, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes, their reaction is, why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And you know what? They're right. The problem is they didn't recognize God in their midst. Immediately, Jesus, listen to this, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Wow. You think the Lord is some ordinary man? What about the crowds? Over and over and over again, the crowds come, and they're fickle. Sometimes they just follow because they want bread. Sometimes they follow because they want him to become king and save them from Rome. Some of them believe, and then when he starts teaching difficult things, they go, well, that's all well and good. We believe, but (laughs) we got lines. We got comfort that we're more worried about than following you. In Matthew 13, verse 15, it says this, the heart of this people has become dull. Did you catch it? The heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart in return, and I would heal them. The Lord was able to see right through the motives. He was, right, he was able to see right to the heart. Right to the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance. Where does God look? At the heart. At the heart. Folks, Jesus was able with insight to look right through and understand the true reality of what was in people's hearts, what was in their minds, whether it was his disciples, whether it was the religious, whether it was the crowds. What about his relationships? When you look at the life of Christ, isn't it convicting to see how he treated people with kindness and gentleness and patience. It's amazing, isn't it? One of my favorite pictures of the Lord is when he was with the children. And he's with the children. Some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked them. Can you imagine? I think that's a little bit foreign to us, but yet we do the same thing, don't we? Folks, we got to be careful about that here. Children come in here and, and somehow we, oh, don't run. Get out of here. You're, you're, you're making a mess. What? I'm not saying that they should run. I'm not saying they should make a mess. But there's a way to engage children. Jesus loved children. Loved children. Jesus said, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And laying his hands on them, he departed from there. Now, that doesn't mean that he spanked them, okay? (laughs) Laying his hands on them means that that he loved on them. He comforted them. He blessed them. Can you imagine those little children? They're being chased away by the disciples. They're being rebuked. And the Lord says, no, 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 let him come here. Let him come here. And he puts his hands on them and blesses them. Oh, what a picture of our Lord. What a picture of our Lord. What about the woman at the well in John chapter 4, verse 5, and how he deals with her 
What's her response as the Lord begins to engage her in a spiritual conversation? She starts out with the physical. Give me physical water to drink. And he, he takes it to another level and he wants to give her spiritual water. Him talking to a woman and a Samaritan woman of that. His disciples have gone into the city and all they care about is physical food. And the Lord is concerned about spiritual food. She goes back into the city and the disciples have completely blown it. <laughs> all they care about is food, physical food. And they come back and they're shocked. Here's the Lord talking to the Samaritan woman. And what does the Samaritan woman do? She's so profoundly impacted by the love and the kindness, the truth and the gentleness of our Lord. And she goes back into the city and she says this in John 4.29. Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? Wow. How do, how do people feel when we interact with them, when we engage with them? Is Christ being revealed through us in such a way that they're amazed, not by us, but by our Lord in and through us. The outcasts of society, including the Gentiles, the poor, the drunks, the prostitutes. Good grief, the Lord was so kind that people that society had cast out flocked to him. So much so that he was accused of being one of them. <laughs> Maybe... Maybe in our day and age, maybe that needs to be said of us a little bit more. John chapter 8, verses 10 through 11, the adulterous woman straightening up, Jesus says to her, woman, where are they? Remember, they came, they set her up. They wanted to trap Jesus. They throw her at his feet. And the Lord begins to draw on the sand. We're not sure exactly what he begins to write in the sand. I believe that he began to write... The Ten Commandments. <laughs> and so these guys come in and all of a sudden they see the Lord writing the Ten Commandments and they know immediately they haven't measured up to that standard. And the Lord in his calm, patient, completely in control moment and in his way says to this lady, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. In Luke chapter 7, 34, speaking about the religious leaders, they're accusing him of this. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's what they called him. In Luke 19, how can we forget little Zacchaeus? Right? You know the song. I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> the wee little man. <laughs> How many of you know that song? You know that song, don't you? Come on, seriously. Yeah, some of you, I don't know. A wee little man is he, right? What is he? Is he a tax collector? And the Lord goes to him and says, I'm going to come to your house, and I'm going to eat there with you today. What's Zacchaeus' response at the kindness, the truth, the reality of who the Lord is? He says, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. You think? He had defrauded everybody and anybody. And what he's basically saying is, My life has changed. 
I realize it's not about material things anymore. There's something more about the Lord. Something greater than anything this world has to offer. Not only is it his insight, his relationships, do we see that he's no ordinary man, but what about his deeds? Oh my goodness. We don't have time to go through all the miracles. What were his miracles for? His miracles were to reveal his divine identity and his power. And we can see it really in four different ways. Power over nature, power over disease, power over the demonic realm, and power over death. You, you look at all the, all the different miracles and you can see that God's power is being made manifest through the Lord Jesus Christ. Why did he do those things? He did them for us so that we wouldn't necessarily look at the miracle, but we would look at the one who had performed the miracle and we would worship because Jesus is no ordinary man. Power over nature, the the first miracle, the changing of the water into wine. One of my personal favorites is the feeding of the 5,000. And if you really read that carefully, in the different gospel accounts, what you're going to find is that he asked Philip early on in the day when the crowds were coming out to them, hey, Philip, look at all these people. How are we going to feed them? (laughs) And it's not till late at night that he performs the miracle. What do you think Philip was doing the whole time? He's running around going, what? What are we going to do? What can we do? How are we going to feed these people? The Lord asked me I'm supposed to do something here. How many times do we do that? The Bible makes it very clear that the Lord asked Philip that because the Lord already knew what he was going to do. He just wanted Philip to lose some weight. (laughs) The nervous spiritual energy here, brother. Go on, pal. (laughs) How many times do we do that? Oh, we worry and we fret. God puts us into a circumstances. He already saw it coming. He already knows what he wants to do. And we're in the midst of it just running, 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 running. Walking on the sea. <laughs> I love it. Oh, man, they scream out like a bunch of little girls, don't they? No offense to the little girls. But that's what the disciples screamed like. And the Lord calms the sea. And what I love is in John chapter 6, verse 21, it says, immediately they were on the other side. What are you going through right now that you can't see through it? It's a storm that looks like it's going to destroy you. And the Lord's coming to you and you don't even recognize him. Because you're so consumed by the storm that you don't have your eyes, as Greg prayed earlier, fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you don't recognize him when he shows up. Folks, is the storm a problem for the Lord? You're kidding me, right? Immediately done. They bring him into the boat, and it says the boat was immediately on the other side. Don't miss that. Power over disease, my goodness. Over and over and over and over, we see the Lord ministering to the hurting, 
the people that were outcasts, whether it was the lepers, whether it was the lady who was bleeding for years, whether it was those who were paralyzed, those who had to be lowered down through the roof. The healing of the man with the withered hand is an amazing story. It's the only place in the, in the, in the Gospels where it says that Jesus was angry. Because the Pharisees were basically saying to him, don't you heal this guy on the Sabbath day. It's the Sabbath. You're not supposed to work. It says the Lord was angry, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he healed them right in front of them. Don't you love that? (laughs) What about the demons? The healing of the Gerasene demoniac? What did he do? This man had a demon that was called Legion. <laughs> and the Lord commands the, the legion to go into the uh, group of pigs, the herd of pigs. And they go throw themselves over the edge of the cliff and they all die. You know, they're not supposed to be raising pigs, folks. I mean, this is right under Old Covenant. They, ham was not in their diet. The Lord's sense of humor in it. Power over death, the raising of Lazarus. You know, isn't that an amazing story? Here, here he raises somebody from the dead. How many days had he been in the tomb? Four days. Martha says, no, 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 don't, don't open it. Forgive me, but this is the reality. His body stinks. He's decayed. He tells Mary, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Martha's saying, don't open it up. The Lord says, open it up. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And <laughs> Lazarus comes out. And what do the Pharisees do? What do the Sadducees do? What does the Sanhedrin do when they come together to meet? They don't fall on their faces and worship the Lord as being who he really is, the God-man, somebody unique, somebody that was superior to each and every one of them. What do they do? They say, we got to kill this guy. we got to kill him. He's no good. <laughs> what? Oh, no one can duplicate the life of Christ, folks. Only Jesus himself had the ability to live a perfect life because he's the God-man. What are we to do? How do we walk with the Lord in this? Well, we're to yield to him. We're to walk by faith, persuaded of who he really is. And through this experience, the life of Christ, when we yield to him, we begin to experience the life of Christ, Christ himself in us, living his life through us, changing us, metamorphosizing us, renewing our minds, leading us, guiding us, directing us, empowering us. And in the midst of it, we get to experience him. We get to experience his kindness. How do you know when you're experiencing Christ in your life? How do you know that? Let me close with just a few thoughts. First of all, I think you begin to experience love regardless of what is deserved or earned. You catch me? How do you know when you're walking with the Lord? You begin to experience his love regardless of what is deserved or earned. And let me make it something that's not just self-focused. Let me make it something that is other-focused. You begin to love regardless of whether it was deserved or earned. And you immediately step back and you go, that, that's not me. That's Christ in me, living his life through me. Peace, which guards your hearts 
and your minds. Have you experienced that, the peace that passeth all understanding? You go through a circumstance, it's difficult, you're not sure exactly how you're going to get through it. You die to it, you yield to the Lord in the midst of it, and suddenly the peace of Christ begins to flood you. And you begin to realize, oh, man, I, I got my eyes on the waves and took them off of Christ. God's sovereign over this. He's got this. Joy, no matter what the circumstance may be. Trust in the Lord regardless of what makes sense. What makes sense seems to dominate us. We're so pragmatic. And the reality of it is, what is God calling us to? And it may not make sense at all. And are we willing to say, I don't know that I got this figured out. And the Lord says, that's okay, I do. I'll reveal it when I'm ready to. You just follow me. And all of a sudden we have that peace, we have that joy, because we know God's in control. Compassion for the weak, the hurting. When we're walking with the Lord and experiencing the life of Christ, guess what? God's going to produce within us a compassion for the weak and the hurting. No question. No question about that. Lastly, a willingness to yield to the Lord regardless of the cost. Regardless of the cost. Whatever that cost may be that we try to figure out in the midst of whatever God calls us into, whatever it may be, we immediately begin as we yield to the Lord to experience him and we're willing to say, yes, Lord, no matter what the cost, no matter what the cost, because we know our Lord. See, the Lord is no ordinary man. When we look at all these gospels, we look at all these stories, and I mean, there are many of them. What do we come away with? Do we come away with somehow that I'm supposed to live the Christian life? Friends, Jesus Christ is the only one that can live the, the Christian life perfectly. We need him, amen? We need our Lord. <laughs> we need to say yes, Lord, and experience his life as he begins to work in us, and then he begins to reveal himself through us. Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. Everyone has a story. Please tell us yours. Visit www.hoffmantown.org and click on the Tell Us Your God Story link on the homepage to share yours with us. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and we hope you will join us next week.